Hey, before I get started, one more time, can we give it up for Del Poor in the set shop? I hate for this car to go away. I stand up here every week, four times a week, and look at the front of it, and for all the world, it looks like a real NASCAR. It's so hard to believe it's made out of styrofoam. And so Dell and his geniuses out there, they work so hard. What a blessing they are to us. Um, about 10, 15 years ago, I began to hear an expression when I would ask people how they were doing. And that expression is going to be what we're going to talk about today. I would ask people, how are you doing? And they would respond in some fashion pretty, pretty close to this. They would say, I'm in a bad place. A bad place. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. A bad place is different from having a specific issue. I mean, it's different from saying, well, I've got a, a, a diagnosis from the doctor the day that I have diabetes and I'm dealing with that, or I'm going through some marriage trouble right now, or uh, things are not what I want them to be at work. I mean, it's one thing when you have a specific problem and people ask you how you're doing and you say, well, I've got this issue that I'm dealing with. But when you say, I'm in a bad place, it's a lot bigger than, it's a deeper hole than a specific problem. And I tried to think in my mind to put words to what people are trying to say to me when they tell me that they're in a bad place. And this is the best that I can come up with. Maybe you can come up with something better. But it's, it's, it's as if they're trying to say, my situation is so painful, complex, and pervasive that it's becoming an emotional dress for me. If I ask you where you live, chances are you would give me a street number, a street, a, a town, a state, a zip code. That's your address. And you would say, I live there. But when a person says, I'm in a bad place, emotionally speaking, their address has become that place, that bad place that they're in. And if you want to find them, you will find them in that bad place. They're in a situation so painful, so complex, so pervasive, that it has become an emotional address for them. Now, here's my thing. When I talk to people who tell me they're in a bad place, here's what I discover most people are thinking. It goes something like this. I'm in a bad place right now. This bad place gives me a free ticket to be incapacitated. And when this bad place goes away and a good place comes and takes its place, then I will resume life. But I worry about that. And I'll tell you why. Um, I'm not a young man anymore. And one of the things that I've discovered about life is that it goes quickly. I mean, you go from being a kid in high school to having high school age kids, to having grandkids who are in high school. Life just goes fast, and opportunities go away, and, and deals slide off the table, and, and opportunities get pulled back. And my question is this, who among us has the time to sit around and wait for a bad place to go away and a good place to come and take its place? And among us, who has the assurance that that bad place will go away? I have a better question, I think, and I want us to tackle it today. And you're going to help me because as you listen, I think you're going to make applications that I won't even get to in the talk. And here's the question that I have. How can a bad place turn into a good place? How, how can we get to the place where we can say, even though I'm in a situation that's so painful, complex, and pervasive, and even though I may not have solutions for the complexity or medications for the pain or I may not be able to clear out the pervasive nature of my issue, even though I may not be able to deal with any of those things, my bad place is going to turn into a good place. Is it possible for a bad place to turn into a good place? If you're in a bad place today, is that possible for you? And if you're here today and you say, Mark, I'm not in a bad place, well, let me just encourage you to listen because you will be. Someday you will be. How does a bad place turn into a good place? We're going to talk about that for just a few moments. Well, last week I introduced you to a character, and his name was Jacob. And today we're going to talk about him again. 
Our series, Shift, is all about God shifting us into a more advantageous gear. And we've looked at four stories where God's change, the change that he brought about in people's life was so dynamic that he actually changed the name. It was as if their identity was different because of their encounter with God. What you're about to hear is my favorite talk of the series. And one of the things that's distinctive from the other four weeks is this is not the change of a person's name. It's the change of a place's name. As I said, last week we met Jacob. And I, I kind of introduced you to him. He is, he is in the book of Genesis. He is an important character. He is a God follower. But he's a total screw-up. And I kind of shared the story. And if you were here last week, I don't want to belabor this. If, if you weren't here last week, you can watch this online. But just to give you a little bit of a thumbnail sketch of Jacob's life, he is the second born in a family. And as we saw last week, if you're the second born in a family in that time, you, you just basically were out of the money. You just, you just ran out of the money because the older kid got almost everything. And in, in Jacob's life, it wasn't just so bad that he was the second born. He, he came in second in a two-man race, not by years, but by seconds, because his older brother and he were twins, but very different. The older brother's name was Esau. He was very masculine. He was a studly man. Jacob, on the other hand, was a very ordinary, very plain man. He was an indoor guy. And when he was born... Um, Jacob came out of the womb grasping the heel of his brother Esau, and that's how he got his name. Because you can imagine, if you're out running somewhere and somebody's hiding in the grass, and while you're running, they reach up and grab your ankle and trip you, that's a sneaky, dirty trick to pull. And that's what Jacob's name means, one who grabs by the heel. It means dirty trickster, sneaky, manipulative. And as we saw, Jacob lived up to his name, didn't he? Because he cheated his older brother out of the two things that his older brother wanted, first one, not so much, but the second one was big. The first one was the spiritual leadership of the family. Basically, Jacob, saw, he, he bought the birthright, the spiritual leadership of the family, for a bowl of chili. And that's deceptive and cheap. He took advantage of his older brother's appetite. But while Esau didn't care a whole lot about the spiritual leadership of the family, he cared a lot about the second thing, which was called the blessing. And that was the father's ability to confer in that fledgling Jewish nation, the father's ability to confer the ability to make, make money, to be successful. It was, the, it was the success blessing. And Jacob pretended, we saw this last week, and again, I won't go into it. He pretended to be his older brother Esau with his dad's eyesight failing. You know, he, he was wearing Esau's clothes, so he smelled like Esau. He was, he had, Esau had a lot of hair on him, and Jacob was smooth. He had goat, goat skin tied onto his wrists and his back of his neck. And he went in and he pretended to be Esau, and he got, he actually got what he was looking for. He got his father's blessing. Now Esau, as we saw last week, said, I'm going to kill, I'm going to murder my brother. Now those were not empty words. Esau literally meant to murder his brother. But Jacob had just a tiny window of time. At that point, if you're again, you were here last week, Isaac, their father, thought he was dying. He wasn't. He was going to live for a long time. But he thought he was dying, and the boys thought he was dying. And Esau basically said, when my dad is dead, I am going to kill my brother Jacob. So there's just a tiny breathing moment there. But I want you to think about Jacob at this point because he is in the quintessential bad place. You see, he has done what he thought he wanted to do. He has gotten what he thought he wanted to get. But now all he has are problems because he is him, he's having to live in the house with someone who wants to kill him. And I hope that never happens to you. I mean, it's one thing if you have somebody who wants to kill you 
in another state, someone who wants to kill you across town, but when you have to be at home and across the dinner table from someone who every waking moment, all he thinks about is he wants to kill you, that's a bad place. Now, here's what I want to talk about today that's going to be, I think, helpful to us. Jacob is basically in a bad place in three ways. First of all, he's in a bad geographic place. We've already talked about that. He's in a bad geographic place because he lives in a house with a brother who wants to kill him. Geographically speaking, that's bad. He's too close to Esau. But secondly, he's in a bad place personally because Jacob has got character flaws. Jacob is a cheater. He's a liar. He's a manipulator. I mean, <laughs> he's a God follower. It's kind of hard to, hard to put together. But even though he wants to follow God, he has these personal character flaws. And, and so I would say on a personal level, he's in a bad place. His personal issues have conspired against him to put him in a bad place. Uh, I don't like country music, but my favorite country song of all time is George, uh, uh, George Jones' song, Choices, Living and Dying with the Choices I've Made. And that's Jacob. He's personally in a bad place. He's living and dying with the choices he's made. But he's in a spiritual bad place. I want to take a time out for a moment, and I want to talk to you about something that I think will help us all. You're, if you ever attend church, especially a church that tells the truth, from time to time you're going to sit in a service and you're going to hear something that pushes back against the way you're living your life. The Bible talks about sins. And I have them in my life, and you have them in your life. And what will happen if we listen to a credible Bible teacher or Bible preacher, or if we just read the Bible, we're going to come across stuff that says what we're doing isn't right or what we're not doing is, is, should be done. Now, human nature has a tendency to sort of like put up our hands over our ears at that point as if to say, I don't want to hear this. In fact, you know, if you come to New Spring and one day I happen to talk about something that's your issue, it can be like, I don't know if I want to come back next week. Why do we respond that way? I think we respond that way because we have this fear that God isn't going to love us anymore. And so consequently, I don't want to hear that what I might be doing is wrong because if I hear that, I might have to be open to the possibility that God isn't going to love me anymore. But could I just ask you to think about something? If you understand the Bible, you know this, that as long as you live, you can never do anything to cause God not to love you anymore. Nothing in your life is going to stop God from loving you. But here's where it gets important. What we do can put us in a place where God can't bless us. Now, God will always love you, but our, my conduct can put me in a place where God can't bless me. He, may, he wants to. He wants to bring good things into my life. But if my conduct is such that it's wrong and I allow sin to be present in my life, God is looking down like, I'd like to do so many good things for Mark, but he's put me in a place where I can't bless him. For instance, and Scripture is very clear on this. If I'm abusive in my language to Mary Alice, then God won't answer my prayers. It's not that God doesn't love me. It's not that he doesn't want to hear my prayers. He's just saying, look, Mark, if you can't, if you can't talk to your wife in a good way, I'm not going to listen to you when you try to talk to me. In fact, I can't wait for us to get into King of Talk next week. It's going to be the biggest thing I've ever been part of, and I promise you <laughs> when this service is over. <laughs> Don't you worry about the way Americans are talking to each other? We're tearing our nation apart. Wherever you come from politically, can't we learn to talk to each other in a more gracious way? And so God is just saying to me, look, Mark, if you, if you talk the wrong way to your wife or if you do certain things, it's not that God doesn't love me. God is just saying, hey, my hands are tied. You've put me in a place where I can't bless you. And when you look at what Jacob has done to his brother, as much as God wants to bless Jacob and ultimately will, 
Jacob has put himself in a bad place spiritually because God can't bless him. So there you are. He's in a bad place. Bad place geographically, bad place personally, bad place spiritually. You may, you may, find, you may find this interesting, but I feel sorry for Jacob. And you can say, well, Mark, how do you feel sorry for Jacob? I mean, he cheated and swindled his brother and he just did all those bad things. Why do you feel sorry for him? I'll tell you why. I feel sorry for him because nobody gives him good advice. Do you know the only advice that Jacob gets when he's in that bad place we just described? His mama says, you need to leave home and go live with my kinfolks 500 miles away. Listen, New Spring, the only advice he gets is geographic. You know what I think? I think most of the advice that we get is superficial. And I, I, I look on Facebook and somebody's talking about some situation in their lives and I think, wow, I wish somebody would speak truth into this person. But what I discover is a lot of times their friends will tell them what they want to hear. And then there'll be somebody who hates them that comes on and talks, you know, really bad and says, wow, I'm glad you're here. You deserve to be here. And, and I think, what a shame because where is that person who will speak truth? Where is that person who will, who will say what needs to be said? And the problem that I have with poor Jacob is the only advice he gets is superficial. Leave home. Now, this, this quote I'm about to use is attributed to Einstein, and I guess you've probably heard it. I don't know if Einstein really said it or if he said it exactly this way. But according to Einstein, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. I don't think that's true. I'll tell you why. Because in my 40 years of pastoring, I've talked to a lot of smart people, not insane people. I've talked to a lot of smart people, brilliant people, who do the same things over and over and they expect different results. Let me say that statement, I think, in a more accurate way. The definition of futility is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. In other words, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our careers, if we, if we employ failing strategies, failing actions, and we keep doing the same thing over and over, then it's not that we're insane. It's just that nothing good's going to come out of that. And that's the thing that worries me about the advice that Jacob's getting. Nobody says to him, look, Jacob, you keep doing the same things over and over. You keep cheating your brother and lying, manipulating, and you keep expecting a good outcome. And it's not that you're insane, Jacob. You're a smart guy. But it's the definition of futility. I, I wish, and I don't know how many of you know the name Peter Drucker. But if you like to study business, and especially if you go to business seminars and you like to read business paradigm books, chances are you know the name Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker is called the father of American management. What happened in the 20th century, some of these corporations grew so large that management couldn't keep up, and so the companies became unwieldy. And along came Peter Drucker with his science, with his scientific approach to management. And almost every day of my life, I have a chance to employ one of Peter Drucker's quotes. And the interesting thing about Peter Drucker's management, and the reason why so many of us utilize his quotes, is oftentimes Peter would say the simplest stuff, the things that people walked right past. For instance, if he went into a failing business, he would always ask two questions. What business are you in and how's business? Pretty simple, but most businesses I've talked to, many of them don't know that. But here's the quote that I want to use right now because Peter Drucker said this, if you want something new, you have to stop doing something old. Can we take a deep breath and just process that for a moment? If you want something new, you have to stop doing something old. What happens in many marriages and many relationships is people just keep doing the same thing over and over and they keep hoping for something new. And Drucker was right. That's what the Bible teaches over and over. If you want something new, you have to stop doing something old. And I keep waiting for his mama or his daddy to look Jacob in the eyes and say, Jacob, 
If you want something new, you got to stop doing this stuff, man. You got to stop cheating people and lying to people, manipulating. If you want something new, you have to stop doing something old. Well, okay, let's move the narrative along. It's the day that Jacob has to leave home. You see him? He's packing, he's leaving. But more so than literally, he is leaving with baggage <laughs> because he hasn't dealt with what he needs to deal with. You're ever out at the airport? This happens to me all the time. Seems like it's a Murphy's Law thing. You're ever out at the airport and you're waiting to check in at your airline and the person in front of you has got all this baggage? And I'm not talking about just luggage. I'm talking about like boxes that are taped up and, and all kind of, I mean, it looks like, and, and, you know, they're getting out their credit card and paying these exorbitant fees because they just have all this baggage all over. I always have two questions. Number one, where did you get all this stuff? But my bigger question is, why do you want to take it with you? I look at that stuff they have on the ground, and I think I'd buy an airplane ticket to anywhere just to get away from that stuff. And I think about that when I meet people sometimes. I see people that move on with their lives, but they move on with baggage. And it's like, why do you want to go to your new situation and take all this junk with you? But Jacob is leaving with baggage because nobody has helped him deal with what he needs to deal with. Now, I try to get into things. I love the Bible, and I love to try to get my mind into the story. But can you see him that morning when he leaves home? Because you talk about being in a bad place. He has to leave home. It's not that he wants to. It's not that he said, well, I've always wanted to go around the world. He has to leave home. And not only that, he has to leave home. You know, home is usually where we go when we get in trouble. Home is where we wanted to go when we got fired because we knew we'd be with people that would love us. Home is where we go when we got the diagnosis from the doctor because you wanted to be around the people who love us. Home is where we go when we get in trouble. But Jacob's having to leave home, has to leave home. Has to leave home because his conduct has been so shameful, he can't be at home anymore. And he's going to have to be outside. He's an indoor guy, but he's going to have to be outside for a 500-mile trip that he's going to have to go all by himself, and he's going to make that trip with nobody that he knows along the way and go live with people he doesn't know. I don't know what it's like to do this, but from my thinking as I thought about this, to me it felt like somebody who was about to check into prison. And so I see him in my head as he waves goodbye to his mom who's crying, waves goodbye to his dad. And there is Esau with his arms crossed, glaring at him, saying, I'm going to kill you. That's a bad place. Well, according to the Bible, he takes off for this 500-mile trip. And 500 miles by foot is something. That's almost a difference, distance between Wichita and Austin. And he, if, you, if you study this out, we're not going to look at it today, but he, makes, <laughs> he really makes tracks. I mean, I think he felt like, as soon as I get out of the city limits, my brother Esau is going to chase me. So Jacob is on a dead run, and he covers a lot of territory. And he runs, and he runs, and he's, he's exhausted, but he just keeps running. i got to get a little further away, a little further away, a little further away. Finally, he just gets to a place where he can't go any further, and he collapses. <laughs> Under the city limit sign of a place called Luz. This is interesting to me because when I think about Jacob running, you know, Jacob thinks he's running from Esau, but he's really running from Jacob. He's running from himself. My Uncle Albert is my mom's oldest brother, and I'm late born. My parents were 30 when I was born. My mom was late born. 
My Uncle Albert was older than her by about 11 years, so to me, he was almost grandfatherly when I grew up, and I never had too many conversations with him, but he was a stately, almost Cary Grant kind of guy, but just a great man. And I do remember we had all the family at my house and all the cars clogging our driveway, and we ran out of ice, and I told my mom and dad, I said, hey, we, we had a little convenience store half a block away. I said, I'll just walk down and get ice. And my Uncle Albert said, hey, I'll go with you. That was... It was the coolest thing because all down that walk, my Uncle Albert told me stories. By the way, adults, when you have a chance to invest in a kid, you do that. Because as far as I know, that's really the only lengthy conversation I've had with my Uncle Albert. And I think about the things he shared with me almost every day. And he told me a story that, as a pastor, I've had a lot of chances to think about this one. Albert said that when he was about 11 years old, his younger sister Ethel's in between my mom and he, his younger sister, Ethel, would be sent down to the cellar to get stuff out of the, you know, out of the cellar, canned goods and so on. This was Depression-era stuff. And my Uncle Albert would be made to go down into the cellar with my Aunt Ethel because she was terrified the ghost inhabited that cellar. And, you know, typical 11-year-old boy, who wants to have to go down with your sister and protect her from all the ghosts? Well, as he, as he, he and I walked down the convenience store that day, he was telling me this story. He said that Ethel had to go to the cellar, and she had a mop over her shoulder, and the mop was hanging down over the back of her shoulder. And they got down to the cellar, and Albert found this long piece of white cheesecloth. Don't get ahead of me now. <laughs> and he threw it over the mop, and it draped all the way to the floor. And he asked Ethel, Ethel, what's that following you? And she turned around and saw a ghost and began to run and bounce off the walls of the cellar and knock jars off and screamed at the top of her lungs. And everywhere Ethel went, that ghost chased her right behind her. And I thought about that so many times. He told me that when I was 14, but I thought, I thought about that so many times through the years. I've met so many people who are running from ghosts that they're carrying. And that's Jacob. He thinks he's running from Esau, but he's running from Jacob, and he can't get away. So as I said, he finally collapses in a town called Luz. Now, listen, guys, you're going to think I'm being too cute by half, but I'm telling you, this is really true. You know what the name Luz means? It means it happens. That's really true. It means it happens. See, what happened, <laughs> what, 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 how Luz got its name was when the people settled Luz, they found this tree that just grew there. No, nobody planned it. Nobody wanted it. Nobody asked for it. It, was just, it just grew there. You know, and people would say, well, I'm putting it in my lawn. Next thing I know, I've got three of those trees in my backyard. People say, well, it happens. Well, you know, we just like, we put the, we, we, we put, we put the city hall here, and we, you know, we put all the fencing around it. Next thing you know, those trees are everywhere. Well, it, it happens. That's really true. That's the name of the town. It happens. And to me, I just get this in my head. I mean, here's Jacob running from himself, going as far as he can, and he collapses in this place called It Happens. And I've discovered that a lot of people are in a bad place, and that's pretty well summing up where they are. They push, they push, they push, they push, and they finally get to the place where they can't push anymore, and they finally just find themselves in a place called It Happens. I don't listen to country music, but there's a group called Sugarland that wrote this song to the number one, number one of the charts. It happens. Of course, goes life don't go like you planned it. Try so hard to understand it. The indisputable, irrefutable fact is, it happens. That's a bad place to be, isn't it? 
when I moved to Kansas almost 32 years ago from Texas, I discovered that Kansas has a state motto. It's in Latin, but it means to the stars through difficulty. Kansas could always use some help with branding. But <laughs> I love it, though. Do you know what the motto of Luz is if you're there today? you got to shrug to say it. The motto of Luz is whatever. If you're in Luz today, that's your motto, whatever. Yeah, I've been married 10 years. Whatever. You know, somebody asks you how your husband is, whatever. What about raising your kids? Yeah, my, my kids, they, when I talk to them, they just, they just watch television, just get on their iPhones, whatever. What about work? Oh, same old slime pits. How's it going? Whatever. You know what whatever says? Whatever says, there's nothing I can do about it, nothing anybody can do about it. It happens. It happens. See, that's when you live in Luz, that's, that's your town. It happens. Murphy's Law. What can I do about it? Stuff happens. But while Jacob is in Luz, he meets the last person he expects to meet in Luz, and it happens. He runs into God. Now, I want to take you in the Bible to Genesis chapter 28. And if you have a Bible, electronic device, you can follow me. If not, it's okay. This will be up on the iMag. But I want to read to you what happens because Jacob crashes. And look at this first line. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against. In other words, he finds a rock for a pillow. Now, you're in bad shape when you do that. Man, I had this pillow that I liked for years. It was the only pillow I could sleep on. And Mary Alice kept saying, we've got to get rid of that pillow. It's, it's, it's just like, it's like a wafer. It's flat. And I'm saying, it's my pillow. You can't get rid of it. we got to get rid of it. Finally, she just got rid of it. Didn't tell me about it. <laughs> Took me weeks to find a pillow. Jacob's finding a rock. See, when you, when you crash in, it happens. Man, that's, that, it's just a bad place. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against, lay down to sleep, and as he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven, and he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. For all of you rock and roll fans, that's where stairway to heaven comes from. <laughs> Everybody under 40 said, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it's the greatest rock anthem of all time, according to the, to the stats. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abram, the God of your father Isaac. The ground you're lying on belongs to you. Oh, Luz belongs to me? Yeah. I'm giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions, to the west, the east, the north, and the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I'm with you, and I'll protect you wherever you go. One day I'll bring you back to this land. And I, won't, I love this line. It's my favorite. I will not leave you until I finish giving you everything I promised you. <laughs> I mean, Jacob crashes in love. The next thing you know, there's God. And God is, God is saying, Loving things to him. Well, I got seven minutes and 56 seconds according to that clock, so let's see what we can do in that time with four thoughts that I just can't get away from here. This is, this is kind of funny to me. Jacob thought he didn't have the book of Genesis. He didn't have this series. Jacob thought he'd accidentally stumbled on the place where God lives. It was like, wow, this is cool. I've been past all these towns and crashed in this place called It Happens. I didn't know God, God lived here. Wow, this is strange. I mean, it just it didn't look like God would live here. It didn't look like the kind of town God would 
God would live in, but it's the coolest thing in the world. I just, God lives here. It's the standing joke at New Spring that whatever series I'm about to do is my favorite series. And I could pass a lie detector test. But I'll tell you what's really funny is interviewing New Springers for the years to ask them what their favorite, or to hear from them what their favorite series is. And I've had fun listening to this because probably at least 50% of the people who tell me what their favorite series is, it'll be the series they came in. And they'll tell me, oh, this is my favorite series. And I'll think, that wasn't all that good. I mean, what was good about that series? I don't even remember. But it was like, oh, man, that series. They can be here 15 years, and that'll be the greatest series I ever preach. You know what? It wasn't the greatest series. They just found God there. Or somebody will tell me about a series, and, and I'll listen to it, and I'll think, well, that, that, that wasn't all that big. But then they'll start telling me about a life situation where life was out of control. And, and it, you understand, it isn't me. That's why I can't process it and figure it out. It's because... They found God, and God showed up. And, and I find this sort of cute. I mean, maybe, maybe I should find a better word for that. But I just love this. Jacob's like, I, I, I didn't know God. I mean, how did I happen to crash in the very place where God lives? Now, the second thing I notice, and, and this is cool to me, Jacob decides to respond like a God follower. See, many of us will experience God, and we won't change. We sort of like, thank you, God. I didn't expect to find you. It was very nice that you showed up to help me, but then I'm going to go on and live my life the way I've always lived it. Hey, whatever you want to say about Jacob, you got to give him his props here because when Jacob has this experience, Jacob has changed. Look at this. He says he's going to do three things, and this is cool. Watch these. Jacob made this vow. If God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God, and this memorial pillar I've set up will become a place for worshiping God, and I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. Now, at first blush, if you look at all those ifs in there, it could sound like Jacob is negotiating with God, but he's not. God has already promised to do all those things. Actually, a better, a better word would be since, since you're going to do this. Jacob is saying three things. Number one, you're going to be my God. I'm not going to mess around anymore. I've decided you are my God. Number two, Jacob is saying, I'm going to go to a place of worship. I'm going to have a place of worship, and I'm going to be serious about it. And then number three, Jacob said, I'm going to present. He didn't say give because the tithe already belongs to God. He said, I am going to present a tenth of everything I have. That's what God followers have done. By the way, we're launching a brand new app here at New Spring, which I'm so excited about. For us in the Hoover household, we believe the first tenth belongs to God, which is why we set up a electronic giving in our home. Here's the third statement. And this is for all of you who are in a bad place today. I hope this speaks to you the way it speaks to me. Jacob says, surely God was in this place, and I didn't know it. Now, I wish I knew how to preach, because if I did, I could make this point. We tend to think about stuff that goes wrong, this place, by contradistinction to God. As if to say, if God were really God, I wouldn't be in this place. If God were really God, then my marriage would not be in the shape it's in. If God were really God, I wouldn't be sick. If God were really God, then I wouldn't have lost my career. If 
And, and I, I understand, here's the thing, if any of us feel that way, there's been a lot of screwed up teaching come from stages with ministers like me who have basically said, God, God is behind everything. Man, that's one of the stupidest things that anybody could teach. God is not behind everything. There was no poverty in the Garden of Eden. There was no racism in the Garden of Eden. There was no abuse in the Garden of Eden. There was no illness in the Garden of Eden. There were no accidents. There was no... There were no emotional disorders in the Garden of Eden. I mean, if everything is happening the way in the earth God wants it to happen, why did Jesus teach us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? No, a whole, whole, most of the stuff that happens in our world is not God's idea. The, this place is the brokenness of our own selves, as Jacob was, uh, the brokenness of our world, the brokenness of, of people. I mean, the, the, this place is the brokenness of life. But Jacob says, surely God was in this place. And I like this. I didn't know it. Huge. Jacob is speaking in past tense. When he looks at the scenario, he's about to leave Luz, and he's saying, God was in this place all the time, and I didn't know it. We tend to be like that because when we're going, in the, going through the, the throes of difficulty, it's like, well, how can God be in this? How can God be in a breakup of my home? How can God break up? How can God be in one of my kids going off the rails? How can God be in me losing my job? But then as a Christ follower, you move on, and as you move on, you look back and you think, wow, God was there all the time. I love that. God was in this place, and I didn't know it. This and them through. Jacob renamed the place. Jacob's like, well, you know what? We, we got to do something about this name. It happens. Because I, you know, I mean, sure, when I look at the town, it looks like it happens. But boy, when I experience God here, we got to change the name of this town. And so he changed the name from Luz, it happens, to Bethel. Now, if you're from the Christian or Jewish tradition, you know that name. In Hebrew, Beth means house. El is the name for God. Jacob changed the name of the town from it happens to house of God. When you and I go through a bad place in life, we have to decide what we're going to call that place. If you want to be a bitter, negative person, who plays over and over to anybody who will listen all the stuff that people have done to screw you over or hurt you, then you may as well check out on this next minute and a half. But if there's anyone like me that regardless of what happens, I want to be positive, upbeat. I want to be the kind of person that people feel like I've added to them when they are in my presence. If you want to be the kind of person that your kids and grandkids can't wait to be around, then I want you to hear something. You and I are going to have to decide what we call the luzes in our life. Now, early in this series, I told you about a time six years ago when I collapsed. Didn't see it coming. It was a pure luz moment. It happened. Just years of exhaustion, not taking care of myself, years of not treating the ADD that was running crazy in my life, just years of just pushing, 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 just caught up with me in one day, and I collapsed. And I had to be away for like six weeks, which was like being in prison. 
And do I remember painful things about that? Yeah, I do. I remember Mary Alice telling me, we've got to get you out of town. And it was before Christmas. I loved Christmas Eve service, my favorite service of the year. I couldn't preach Christmas Eve here. I can't tell you how hard that was. I remember getting on an air train airplane at, at Mid-Continent at the time. And I sat in the seat and I looked at Mary Alice and I said, I don't think I can ever go back. But you know, I thought about this and I told you this the other day. When I was going through the worst part of that and going through all kinds of doubts of all the things that I'd thought through the years, I sat, went, sat down with my computer on New Year's Day. Just read the file yesterday in the old computer. On New Year's Day, I, I sat down and I thought, what do I know for sure? And I just began to write about salvation. You know, ultimately that became a book that thousands and thousands of people have read as the first thing after they trusted Christ. As I look back on that moment, I have to decide, is that Luz or is it Bethel? For all of you who've known me and you've seen me turn that story into series like intensive care and valleys and you've heard so many messages, you know in my life I chose to name that place Bethel because even though it was the darkest time of my life, God showed up. I don't know why God waits to show up till we're in Bethel. Maybe because we need him most. Maybe because we're finally ready to listen to him. Or more likely, it's finally the desperation has so cleared our vision that we realize he's been there all along. You have to decide whether you're going to look at the things where you've been hurt and you're going to call it Luz because you want to insist on getting the sympathy of someone mistreating you or whether you want the joy of saying, even though I was in a bad place, God showed up in my bad place. He always does, you know. When we were in the worst place, when we were sinful, when we were without help, when we deserved hell, Jesus came into our Luz. He came into our, our, our broken world, and he ran the table for 33 years, and he lived a perfect life, and then he traded with us. I mean, if two people were wearing jackets here today and took the jacket off one person, put it on the other, took the other jacket off, put it on the first person, that is exactly what Jesus did. It, it is as if he took off his righteousness, and he put it on us. And he took off our sin, and he put it on him. And he died on a cross to pay for our sin so that we can be forgiven and have a relationship with God. See, God, God shows up in our lust. And even though we're all sinners, we can look back on that and say, it's Bethel, it's the house of God, it's where God is. Have you ever had that moment in your life? Well, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me because if you've never invited Jesus to come into your life and forgive you, you can do it with me. Here we go. I'm going to pray this prayer slowly because you're going to repeat it with me if you want to. It's not that these are magic words. These are just words that call out for, for God. But you can, I'll pray it slowly so you can decide whether you want to say it. You ready? Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me. And I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. Based on what Jesus did for me, I ask you to forgive me and to make me your child. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before you leave, whether you're in the North Auditorium or South Auditorium, I want to tell you, if you just prayed to receive Jesus, I want you to get something. All you got to do is take your talk to his card, check the box that says, I prayed to receive Jesus. I have a gift bag for you. The book I wrote, 
a DVD and the same Bible I preach from. I just want to give it to you. Don't cost you a penny. Nobody will hassle you or stalk you. We just want you to start out with, with wonderful gifts from us. Just go to guest services either outside the North Auditorium or if you're in the South Auditorium here, just right outside those doors and say, I pray with Mark, and we'll give this to you. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you next weekend.